What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of writing, drama, and language. First, we'll be talking with author David Adler about how he writes different genres. Then we'll have BYU theater professor Teresa Love share about how important it is to introduce theater and drama to young children. Our last guest will be BYU professor Ramona Kutri, and we'll talk about how to cross language and racial barriers in order to understand each other better. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have a special Thanksgiving story time from storyteller Randy Evanson. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. It's right around this time of year that we are able to tune in a focus on gratitude. This does not mean that we aren't grateful all year round, but for this season, giving thanks gets to be our special focus. Over the years, I have many things to be grateful for, my job, my family, my faith. But one thing I am always grateful for is children's books. I love stories, and I found that some of the most poignant and powerful stories are told for children. So I'm grateful for children's books. But I've also found that children's books love to talk about gratitude, too. Beginning with a classic work by Shel Silverstein, The Giving Tree, we find a powerful parable about giving and how to show love and gratitude in return. Another contemporary work that captures the same theme as The Giving Tree, as it shows us the beauty of the world around us and offers us the opportunity to be grateful for all that is here and everywhere, is All the World by Liz Scanyon and Marla Fraze. Todd Parr's bold and colorful book, The Thankful Book, also offers us a broad sense of gratitude when it tells us we can be thankful for things like feet because they help us run and play. There are also some wonderful children's books that offer us insight into gratitude for specific things. James Dougherty's 1938 Caldecott-winning classic, Andy and the Lion, shows us that we can be grateful for others and the help they can give us. Another classic Caldecott-winning book, Sylvester and the Magic Pebble by William Steig, shows us by having it taken away that we can be grateful for life and family. There is even beautiful poetry to celebrate the season of gratitude. Nikki Grimes' beautiful poems in Thanks a Million talk about what we are thankful for, but also how we can say thanks with a flower or a surprise. Another beautiful poem of thanks, Father, We Thank You, that is attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson is put into a beautifully illustrated edition by Mark Graham. This poem and the impressionistic illustrations perfectly capture the joy and gratitude for simple things. 
So in this season where our thoughts turn to gratitude, I hope that you can find something to be grateful for and that you might just add to that list of thanks one of these books from Rachel's World that expresses its own sense of being grateful. Rachel's World Sometimes we associate authors with just one genre, but other authors write all different kinds of things. We're excited to be on the phone today with author David Adler, who is the author of the Cam Jansen Detective Mystery Stories and who is one of those eclectic authors. David, you write mysteries, but you also write beginning readers, and then you also write nonfiction. So tell us a little bit as an author, why the difference? Why do you pick so many different genres and styles? Well, first of all, thank you for calling me eclectic rather than unfocused. <laughs> no, eclectic is the word. <laughs> okay. Uh, I have different interests, but I'll tell you why most authors don't do that. And that's, uh, and I, I, encount- I encountered this early in my career. When I was writing Cam at Viking, I said to my editor, I'd like to write a biography. And she said, no, I have you to write the mysteries. I have so-and-so, and she mentioned another writer's name. He writes my biographies. And on the mysteries, they would give me contracts before I even had an idea. On the biography, she said, if you really want to write a biography, write one and I'll take a look at it. So when you imagine that, you know, authors don't have salaries. So when I do a mystery, I just say, I'm going to do one. They say, fine, here's your contract. Here's half of the money of the advance on signing. When I want to write something totally different, they say, let's see it. And, you know, if I'm worried about my income, I've got to write something that they're going to accept much more easily than than not. And it really is an effort for somebody, even if he could write in another genre, to write in another genre and, and try to sell it because editors don't recognize that you can do more than one type of writing. So. You know, that that's really interesting to me that you note that the, the editors don't quite see that you could write those other things because... One of the things that I love, particularly about your biographies and your your nonfiction, is that you bring that sense of your mystery to your writing. And so I think writing the Cam Jansen mysteries is a wonderful way to bring that kind of sense of wonder and awe and discovery to your biographies. And then stylistically, also, you are very approachable to that beginning reader, that transitional reader audience, and your biographies bring that too. So it's funny that you say that because I see them as much more connected than maybe, I guess, your editors do. Well, well, first of all, they're not all the same. I've written for many different publishing houses. The biographies you're probably thinking of is a series at Holiday House. Yes. And I've written for other houses, but mostly for Holiday House. But I I think most people have varied interests if we're, you know, normal people have varied interests. If we only have (laughs) one interest, we're not not, (laughs) something... Life's too boring. (laughs) Psychologist, yeah, you should see... But the intro to me with the biographies, which points to the same thing that I was telling you about the Cam Jansons, there was a need for them. When my sons were in school and they get to third or fourth grade, they were told to write a book report on a biography. And I would go to the library, and there really were no biographies for children in third and fourth grade. Mm-hmm. Now, you could point to a book. Uh, there was a whole few series, and I'd say, but that's historical fiction. When I was young, and we're going back a long time, 
I read The Childhood of Famous Americans. Yeah. They had the orange book covers, if you remember them. Yes, a lot of us do. <laughs> okay. So uh, at one point I said to my mother, I loved them. I said to my mother, how did the author know what George Washington's mother said to George Washington? So my mother said, that's probably made up. I never read another one. I thought I was reading nonfiction. It turns out I wasn't. And the funny thing is, so where did it start? And I can't tell you where it started, but I can tell you where it may have started. Right after George Washington died, a man named Reverend Weems set out to write a biography of Washington. And he tried to sell it, and he did. And he knew Washington because he, was a, he had a, a minister in some kind of a uh, small church. And Washington had come there a couple of times. And after a while, the book sold very well. And then he thought, you know, this is a good opportunity to teach the children real values. It wasn't a young children's book. It was much older. But So he made up the cherry tree story to teach children to be truthful. And the irony of that is just so amazing. Here's a man trying to teach people to tell the truth. So how does he go about doing it? By telling them a lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and, and it's been so accepted there was a book some years ago, a biography of Ronald Reagan, which was fictionalized. And you said, you know, what's the point? And I mean, that's the tricky thing. I think that, you know, things like that kind of corrupted biography and nonfiction for a long time. But we're, we're seeing a wonderful resurgence back to factual based and all of your all of your nonfiction, your biographies and all of your math books and everything that you mentioned earlier. I love how grounded you are in facts. So how do you make that happen? How do you make sure that you don't quote George Washington's mother when you really don't know what she said? How, how do you do that as an author? Well, uh, I did a few books on Washington. One was a very large book. I try to get corroboration from more than one source. I have a reversed look at how my research is done. There's a Talmudic approach to research, and then there's the modern approach to research. So the modern approach is you get the latest book on the subject, and that will give you the latest information. With a biography, my feeling is, let me get the earliest books, because these people, and I, and I have biographies on Washington from people who knew him. John Marshall wrote a whole uh, uh, five-volume set. So I try to go as close to the time of the, uh, the person, the subject lived, and work that, and, and work from there to the present, rather than from the present backwards. My first older-level biography was called B. Franklin Printer. And shortly before the book was to be published, I had the galleys, and a book by a professor came out, and there was a story. I started to read it. I said, let me just check if I left something out. And I was reading about when Ben Franklin, Ben Franklin's father was afraid that Franklin would end up going... Uh, becoming a sailor, going to sea, because he loved the water. And he's, and in this book it said the reason he was so fearful is because Franklin's brother had gone off to sea and never returned. Now I had in my book that his brother went off to sea and returned some years later. So I said, where did I get it? I mean, I, I, I'm very careful. So I looked back at my notes. I got it from Franklin's autobiography. There's nothing more authoritative than that. Most definitely. Right. So that was, but that's going back from the time of the subject working forward instead of going from now and working backwards. So I, I would never, you know, point a finger and say, 
this person is wrong, but I was afraid that reviewers would look at his book and say that I was wrong. So what I did was I put my sources in my author's notes so that if you question that, you could just look and it tells you where, where I got that information. David, this is so fascinating, and I appreciate you so much breaking down this thought process for us because I think it really helps our listeners to understand the great care and uh, and wonder that goes in from your end in, into making these wonderful books. As we close our conversation today, maybe give us just one tip that you might have for a, a budding author out there. So, so maybe a young person who is starting out where you started out many years ago in your career, what is that one tip that you would give to them as to set them on the right path to being an author? Well, when I, when I speak it to children in schools about the writing process, it really has to be interesting from the first word. Uh, I was an editor for a while, and uh, I remember somebody sent me a huge manuscript, and I started to read it, and by page five, I knew there was no way we were going to publish it. I felt terribly guilty because this person put so much time into writing it and, and typing it. But then I realized that person's not paying me, my publisher is. A after page five, I'm just wasting my publisher's time. So I called up the author and I said, you know, we're not going to do it. She asked me, did you read the whole thing? I said, no, I only read the first five pages. She said, it, it gets good later. I said, that's too bad. If it's not good at the beginning, nobody is reading it later. So my tip is make it good from the very beginning. If you have a great line, try to make that the first line. Once you grab the reader, and if you look at the Cam Jansons, in all the Cam Jansons, I have to tell the reader that she has a photographic memory. She says click when she wants to remember something, and her real name is Jennifer. There's a lot of important material that has to be in every single Cam Jansen, just in case that's the first one you picked up. You will never see it on the first page. I don't start with that. You see it at the end of the first chapter. Once I grabbed your attention and held it with something interesting going on, now that we're both interested in the story, let me tell you what you have to know. And that's really how you should approach the writing. First, I'll get you interested. I'll get you involved. Then if there's some business we have to take care of, I have to let you know some important information. I'll tell you that later, once I have you hooked. David, thank you so much. I have been honored to get to know you better today. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Next, I recently had the pleasure of talking with Randy Evanson and hearing some of his stories from his youth. One in particular was about a hilarious encounter he had with a turkey. Let's take a listen. My grandmother, her name is Emerald, was by far the worst cook in the world. She was terrible. So when she told us that she was going to cook the Thanksgiving turkey for all of us, uh, our, an extended family of about 50 people, we said, oh, no, Grandma, not, no, Grandma usually has the assignment of the jello or the relish tray, but never the turkey. She had read in a farmer's almanac very recently that if a turkey or any animal could be killed when it was happy, that the meat would taste 
the most fabulous you'd ever taste. It would be delicious. So my grandmother said she would help us get a turkey, and she we would chop off its head while it was very calm and peaceful and happy. I was game for that. My grandma is about one of my best friends as well. So when she said, who wants to come with me to go get a turkey, I was on board. We went to down to Manti, where they have turkey farms, and a farmer came out and helped Grandma choose the very best turkey that she thought would be fabulous. He put it in a gunny sack with just the turkey's head sticking out of the sack. When we came out to the car, my grandma lifted the trunk and we put the turkey in the trunk. And then both of us got in the front seat and we started to drive home. We weren't going very far when I said, Grandma, Grandma, I have a great idea. Wouldn't we make that turkey really happy if I got in the trunk with it and told it stories on the way home? My grandma said, that's a great idea. Now, you have to remember, this was back in the 1950s. There weren't even seatbelts. No one worried about anybody being in the trunk. So my grandma opened up the trunk, and I crawled in the trunk of her car with the turkey. On the way home, I told it stories. I told the turkey jokes. I sang songs to the turkey. I even told the turkey math facts. I talked with that turkey all of the way home till we drove into my grandma's driveway. And she came around to the back of the car and lifted the trunk and said, is the turkey happy now? I said, I think so. I think it's ready for, for us to chop off its head. She said, okay, let's put the turkey in the chicken coop and then we'll go get what we need. We put the chur- turkey in the chicken coop and grandma went to the barn to get the hatchet. She told me to run into Grandpa's bedroom where in his top drawer he has some of his black Sunday socks. And I brought them out. Grandma said, now go in the chicken coop and put a sock over the turkey's head so he won't see us chopping off his head. I said, I can do that, Grandma. I went into the chicken coop, and she was waiting for me to come out with the turkey with a sock on its head. But every time I quietly walked over to put the sock on the turkey's head, he, he bounced down and ran across to the other side of the chicken coop. And then I'd run over there. He'd do the same thing. Before you knew it, I was chasing that turkey all over. Finally, Grandma yelled, stop, stop. You, that turkey's not calm. Now you've got him all upset. I said, oh, sorry, Grandma, I don't know what we'll do. We ca- I came out of the chicken coop, and Grandma said, I've got an idea. Will they ever get that turkey to stay still? Stay tuned to hear what happens next. Within the humanities, there are many topics. Art, history, music, literature, and theater are just a few. But theater and drama especially can be engaging and fun for children. But it can be a little daunting to introduce them to these art forms. Today, we're in studio with Teresa Love, a professor of theater and drama here at BYU. Welcome, Teresa. 
I'm so happy to be here. I am so glad to have you here today because we're going to discuss one of my favorite topics, drama and plays. This is such an interesting topic. And, and I think something that sometimes people are a little nervous about, this is not something they understand completely, or they've had some bad experiences maybe with it. So first, let's talk about a little bit about, you know, what is drama? What is play? Can you kind of give us a, a broad definition of that? Well, it's funny that you say that people have had bad experiences with it. As soon as you're a little kid, you begin that imaginary play. That's how that's how you learn. And um, it's later on when we try to codify it and we decide that somebody's better at it than we are and all that kind of stuff. But dramatic play is very, very close to children and they have no trouble absorbing it if it's offered to them willingly, um, happily, and not with lots of expectation. I like that sense because I think sometimes we forget how fundamental this kind of sense of drama and production is for childhood. And connecting it that back to that helps us really understand what role it plays in children's lives. Right. The, the, the thing is, when they are little, we don't say, oh, look, they're doing dramatic play. We just go, oh, they're playing. And the kids are going, you be the dad and I'll be the mom and you be the dog. And who wants to be the baby and who wants to be Spider-Man, you know, and they just make these these stories up. It's the same thing. It's just grown up a little bit in complexity, and eventually in um, it moves into theater. Now, drama is different than theater. So make that contrast for us. How do, what is that contrast? So drama is simply an actor with a conflict and any story that goes around that. And sometimes it gets staged, but it may be staged in the, back, the backyard or the living room for no audience just a dramatic experience where kids learn and, you know, try on these different roles and experiment with, you know, playing, I'm a boy, I'm a girl, I'm a dinosaur, whatever they want to be. Theater is when you take that drama and you communicate those learnings to an audience. So it goes beyond, and that's where we get the idea about fourth wall and all that kind of stuff. But when kids play, it's sort of theater in the round and they don't really stage it for anybody except themselves. But when we do theater, we have to stage it for an audience so they can get what we understand. So then what role does theater play in the lives of children and and how does that connect with them? Well, it's the same thing like do you just let them only play with crayons or do you take them to the Museum of Art? It gives them a vision and they see that other people, that the work that they're doing as children can grow and that it can be serious grown-up work or funny grown-up work or of worth beyond, say, the living room. Or the playroom. And that's I really like that connection because it, it helps them see a broader sense of what the world is. And when you go back to the sense of drama is an actor with a problem, it really is exploring human, human problems. Right, right. And in fact, uh, when kids are solving problems, they are learning, learning about the world. It's really, really easy to do drama with like science problems. And it's really, really easy to do drama with certainly social studies problems and history problems because of all the conflict. So to me, it seems like a natural and it's very rich and easy to jump into. But sometimes in education and in our families, we've siloed these things and say, okay, now we're going to study history. Now we're going to study math. But that whole learning through role-playing and pretending. And the research has also shown that theater is enormously important to in developing empathy 
Of course, because you're trying on somebody else's role, walking in somebody else's shoes. So I think that theater can go a long way to mitigating some of those problems. And I, I would agree. I think that that sense of being able to learn something through the art is wonderful and, and shouldn't be negated. I don't want to negate that at all. But what about the aesthetic kind of nature of it? Because true art is that way. There's some sense of aesthetics and, and just joy in participation. So how do we address those kinds of issues? Exactly. Well, take your kids to theater for young audiences. In Every community, there is somebody doing something for children. Now, that could be of high quality or low quality, just like you know books or any other sort of text that's out there. But all the professional companies have outreach, often done by professional actors who understand or professional directors who understand. Certainly the universities have them. Go seek them out. Let the kids see them. And these are, these are people who really understand children and who really understand theater, and they can present it in ways that your kids can catch on fire with it. And you too. You know, grown-ups can begin to see it also and not think, oh, okay, I'll sit here and sort of snooze for, you know, 35 minutes. No, they can be involved too. I know some parents are a little nervous taking, especially the younger children, to theater or to some kind of dramatic performance just because of the, you know, the quiet nature of it and, you know, the, the, the audience politeness that has to go on with it. So what kind of tips do you have for parents who might be a little nervous about those kinds of things with their children? Well, it's funny. I used to take my um, daughter, who's now 25, and I would sometimes take her to things and not, I mean, theater was the family business. I assumed that she knew what was expected. or So you have to go through it, right? You have to go through it. And just tell them what's going to, where they're going to go to the bathroom and where they're going to sit and that there's, it might get dark or it might not. And the actors will tell you, especially the way practice is now with young audiences, they'll tell you when you can participate and they may invite you up and you can go and you'll be safe up there and it will be fine. Just talking to them the same way you would if you say you were taking them to a baseball game or if you were taking them skiing for the first time. You tell them what to expect and then you trust that the professionals who are doing it or those who are, you know, even amateurs, good amateurs, that they've got a sense for it. They want the play to be successful. They're not – they're doing it for the kids. And so just take a leap and go take them. Yeah. Well, I know uh, recently I was uh, at a production of one of Shakespeare's plays, and there was a young person in the audience. I think I think they were probably – eight or so. And this was a, f- a full production. It wasn't for ch- child audiences. And at one point, um, something happened. And this young child in the audience just burst out, Mommy, he's so funny. <laughs> and I mean, it was wholly audible to the whole audience. And the actor on the stage actually kind of twisted the plot a little bit and addressed the child in his Shakespearean language to, you know, to say to the child, yeah, I really am funny and thanks for noticing kind of thing. And it was just absolutely delightful. And I think a lot of times we think that those kinds of embarrassing things they are embarrassing, but, you know, the the actors understand. Oh, that. absolutely. Absolutely. Because theater artists today, you know, we're trying to stake out our, our claim. And we're not a screen. 
it's that that immediacy that and the fact that you know these people are in this room at this time with the weather like this outside all is going to affect the audience i mean and the production and so it's so delightful when things like that happen and actors tend to especially if they have any sense that there are young people in the audience to relish those as opposed to be irritated by them or you know be grumpy about it yeah and i thought that was just delightful he handled it so well i just thought it was it was perfect but you know as we're talking about just options of things it Especially theater for young audiences, I think, is a great option. But what if there isn't that kind of thing? How how would you suggest moving into more kind of adult forms of theater? For children? For children. That's an interesting uh, question. I think reading the material beforehand or reading it aloud, let's say you're going to take them to Tamey of the Shrew or um, Comedy of Errors, that, that you go through a a children's literature piece that so they'll know what the plot is and they can recognize, oh, that's the part they were talking about. And, you know, this is part of literacy and being able to enter into the world of the grownups. And people tend to want to do that as opposed to not want to do that. And by people, I mean kids. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I know I have a very fond memory of when I was a child. Um, my mother was very into opera. That was her thing. And so one day they were going to put on a full production of Aida up in Salt Lake and um, local theater company. And um, so my mom actually took us out of school that day, took us out of school, and we spent the entire day preparing. So we learned a little bit about the opera. We learned about the composer. We learned about what opera is and the style of music. And we listened to it and it went through a couple of, you know, this is what's going to happen in the plots. And then in the middle of the day, we, you know, we got all dressed up in really fancy, fancy clothes with our little fancy shoes and everything and drove up to Salt Lake and went to a fancy restaurant for dinner. <laughs> and then we went and saw the opera. And so, you know, it was a whole event, uh, for us to do that and that kind of preparation. But, you know, we were young. I, I think it was probably, I was probably eight or nine. Oh, that's, well, I think that's perfect age. Yeah, yeah. And it eight was just, nine. yeah, it was just perfect. And, you know, I've always loved that opera with just a really deep sense of love because of that experience. So I think sometimes we're a little nervous in ways we wouldn't, we shouldn't be to include children in this, in this world and, and have them be able to enter into these adult kinds of things. Right. And remember that it's natural to them. It is more natural to them than it is to grownups, honestly. The thing that's different might be the lights, you know, the orchestra, but the pretending bar, oh, they've got that down. Yeah. They know that. Well, and so much of contemporary theater, I think, has a really childlike sense when we think of all of the plays that Disney has been producing and even things like Wicked. Or Peter and the Starcatchers. Peter and the Starcatchers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think there's this really playful, wonderful sense of a lot of contemporary theater. So so what are some of your favorites? Share us some of the things you love. <laughs> I really, really enjoy black box sorts of plays because the imagination is king there. And that's where children, of course, they just fill in the blanks. And they don't have... Grown-ups often have trouble with it. Well, where's the scenery? And the kids are like, oh, he picked that up and it's a horse now. I get it. So 
I like supporting small companies like that. I also like to take them to great big extravaganzas. Let them see a great big huge projection with fireworks and, and you know, uh, grand costumes and all that kind of stuff so that they can, again, have a vision. And what will happen is they'll go home and wrap a towel around their heads for a turban and, you know, a robe for a ball gown, and they'll act it out. So That's wonderful. As we close down today, just one tip in all of this, what what would you leave the audience with? What do you think they they need to remember about our conversation today? What what is your one tip for everyone out there listening? I'd like parents and grown-ups to have faith in the fact that children are open-minded and very close to this thing we call drama, this play. And go ahead and take a chance. Go ahead. Do it. Yeah. Take a chance and and let them do it and engage with it. Wonderful tip. Thank you so much, Teresa. It's been a pleasure visiting with you. Thank you for having me. Now, let's turn to our special expanded edition of Storytime and find out what happened to Randy Evanson and his turkey. Music will help calm animals down. And she went into her house and opened up all of the windows. She had a stereo with a brand new Perry Como album. So she turned on her Perry Como album and turned it up full blast. When she came outside, the music was so loud. It still was upsetting both the turkey and the chickens. You could hear Perry Como singing for blocks away. We said, Grandma, this isn't working either. You, this is not going to calm down the turkey. And she went in and turned the music off. She said, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to calm down a turkey. She thought for a few minutes and she said, Maybe I ought to calm the turkey down just like I do my own children when they were small. I said, what are you thinking, Grandma? She said, bring that turkey into the kitchen. And I went in the chicken coop and I grabbed that turkey. It was a fight getting that turkey, but I brought it in. When I got it into the kitchen, Grandma sat in her rocking chair and held that turkey just like a baby and began to rock back and forth and back and forth. And Grandma sang to this turkey, and she was rocking. She probably rocked that turkey in her rocking chair for a good 30 minutes until that turkey fell asleep. I didn't even know turkey slept. I didn't know what they did. But the turkey closed its eyes. And Grandma rocked for a little bit longer. And then she looked up to me and said, Go get the hatchet. It was still outside by the chicken coop. And I ran out to get the chicken, the hatchet by the chicken coop. When I came in, Grandma slowly, very slowly stood up out of her rocking chair and walked over to the counter where she had the breadboard. And she slid the turkey's head just barely on the breadboard. And she said, chop off his head. I said, I'm not going to chop off his head. I can't chop off his head. Grandma, I've never done this before. I never killed a turkey. She said, chop 
off its head. And I said, Grandma, I'm worried. I'm going to, I'm going to chop down and it's going to cut your arm. And she said, chop off its head. And I raised the hatchet in the air and my hand was shaking something terribly. I thought, I'm going to chop my grandma's arm right off. And the hatchet was in the air. And all of a sudden that turkey opened its eyes and looked right up at the hatchet. And my grandma said, stop, stop. I don't know what it was about the turkey seeing the hatchet, but it had a heart attack right there in my grandmother's arms. She didn't have to cut its head off. It died in her arms just looking at the hatchet. My grandma, she she plucked that turkey, she cleaned that turkey, and she cooked it. She kept the head on the turkey so everyone knew that she had cooked that turkey while it was calm and peaceful. My grandmother said that was the most delicious Thanksgiving turkey we had ever eaten. With the current political climate, it is becoming more and more important to understand other cultures and to try to cross language and racial barriers. We're in studio today with Ramona Kutri, a professor of multicultural education here at BYU. Welcome, Ramona. Thank you. Ramona, one of the areas that you have of expertise is talking about English language learners and those that we engage with that are maybe immigrants or refugees or other races or cultures, indigenous peoples. I think that this idea of how do we engage with others of a, that are, might be different than us is really important as we talk about a democratic society that we live in today. And it's very timely with all of the things we see on the news and that are going on around us. So to start out, let's talk a little bit about what do you think we need to understand in this kind of general conversation about people of, with other languages or other culture or other racial kinds of identities? What, where do we need to start? Well, you, you mentioned language in particular, so I'll, I'll start there. I think that language um, is often taken as a topic, um, sort of, ooh, such a sexy, fun topic. Yes, let's have um, schools in the United States where um, English-speaking children learn other languages, like Spanish and French and Chinese, which those programs exist right here in my own hometown. Um, And so language as a commodity is um, often very sought after. Yet, the irony is that children who come to this country with proficiencies in other languages are often thought to be problems that need to be fixed. Oh, they need to learn English without recognizing, wow, they already have at least one or two languages in which they um, can converse and sometimes in which they are actually literate as well. And so that that is such a rub that in some situations we commodify language as something that's so desirable and we want to send our English-speaking, um, usually middle-class kids, off to special schools 
to acquire a language. Yet we then look at English language learners in our schools as um, problematic and something that we need to fix versus looking at their heritage language and their heritage culture as wonderful resources that them then actually pos- position them in a really wonderful place to acquire English as a second or third language, to acquire the culture of um, the United States, whatever that is, um, and become bicultural, become biliterate citizens in the United States and talk about an asset for a democracy. Bilingual, biliterate, bicultural citizens in a democracy are so well-rounded, so capable of contributing to a workforce that far exceeds an English-only, um, Western-only type of situation. And really, that is the global economy in which we find ourselves today. That is so true, this sense of global economy. And I think oftentimes you're right that we kind of negate kind of our place in this global economy as privileged or, you know, like our English is privileged. And if you speak English, you're better than people that speak other languages. I think that kind of funny dichotomy plays a lot and it really serves to dehumanize people and to make them lesser. So how do we turn that around? How do we humanize this kind of sense of other and the other sense of people with these kinds of skills really are valuable? How do we change that? How do we turn it around? I think it's very simple. Go out and get to know people. Um, Who's the person that is cutting your grass? Do you know them? Do you know them by name? Um, Who is the person that is doing some other service for you? And I'm speaking very much from a white upper middle class perspective in which oftentimes our lives are facilitated by people who are working um, labor, manual labor type of jobs, who also tend to be demographically from um, immigrant populations um, who might not have uh, fluency in or proficiency in English. Do you know them? Do you know what their family situation is? Do you care about their family situation? Do you make that effort to actually get to know them? Or are they merely people that facilitate your life? And I think in terms of being a human being, it's not okay to just have others who facilitate your life without actually recognizing who they are. Um, I learned a, a wonderful lesson from a colleague long ago We um, in organizing different conferences and things. This colleague, Scott McLeod, would always, um, if we were in like a hotel situation, and he would be giving the opening remarks, and he would specifically stop and say things like, I want to thank the crew in the kitchen. I want to thank the people who are setting up the tables, who are really making our day possible, um, and specifically take time to acknowledge their hard work and thank them. So little things like that in your daily life, who are the people that facilitate you being able to just glide through your life on a daily basis that you really don't recognize, that you really don't know. And so I would say go out, get to know them. One other thing I you brought up that I, I want to address is that people come to this country in all sorts of different situations. Um, in today's current political climate, we know a lot about refugees and we hear the word refugees and wonderful um, opportunities to contribute to um, aid refugees have popped up, which are just great. But the irony is that most refugees are 
undocumented immigrants. Refugees, by definition, um, are leaving country without permission and entering other countries without formal permission. Um, until they become asylum seekers and receive asylum, that's when they are actually legal. Um, yet in our minds here in the United States, we make such a distinction and we have such a different connotation for the word refugee versus the word undocumented immigrant. Um, and I think that that really needs to get problematized because if you look at the people who are undocumented immigrants here in the United States, oftentimes they're fleeing situations of violence, situations of chronic poverty, situations that are pushing them out of their own country. Um, and interestingly, here in the United States, after uh, the recession our economy is not such a pull factor anymore. We have many students in the um, K through 12 population who are returning to their home countries, Mexico in particular, who are returning. So the notion of um, refugees, of undocumented workers needs to really be problematized. And the reality of um, immigrants' lives, I think, need to definitely be humanized. And um, it's complex. I think that across the political spectrum, conservatives and liberals would all agree that our immigration policy in the United States needs to be reformed. Um, just recently, President Trump has pulled the plug on the DACA program, which is the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. These are children who arrived in the United States undocumented before the age of 16 and who've essentially grown up in the United States, often speak fluent English. The majority of the DACA um, dreamers, as they're called, and dreamers very much evoking the notion of the American dream, as well as the dream of um, accomplishing wonderful things in your life. Many, the majority of the DACA dreamers in, right now are college age. They're participating in um, wonderful, enriching activities in our society. They're going to college, they're holding jobs, and they're doing so legally, or we're doing so legally under the DACA program. And so looking at how policy is um, failing to acknowledge the humanity and the messiness, right? What does it mean to be brought here as a child and undocumented? Are you going to actually at three years old say, no, mommy, I'm not going with you? Um, what does it mean when you have one parent who has legal status and another parent who doesn't? Or when you have parents who are here without legal documentation and children who are born here legally? These are human beings. These are families. And in my own faith tradition, we have a strong commitment to families and to um, looking at ways to keep families together. And I would urge any listeners, um, if they are of a faith tradition, to go and look at what their faith tradition is advising regarding people who are here in our country undocumented, families who are being split apart, um, dreamers who are contributing to the American dream, yet now um, at risk for being deported. And I think that each of us has an ability to contact um, our leaders and our representatives and to demand that there is a reexamination and a reform of our immigration policy at a federal level. Ramona, this is such important stuff. And I think when we think of the children in our lives, whether they are of the undocumented workers or of the dreamers or even just our children that we care for, 
these are timely topics and we need to address them as families. We need to address them as individuals and as a country and as a global society. And sometimes they are messy and they're tricky. And it's particularly hard for us to to maybe talk about some of these things with our kids. But the reality is there's so much on the news right now. There's so much in the air there's so much realities. I bet that there is a dreamer in one of your children's classes somewhere that is facing some of these types of things. And I think it's just imperative for us as adults to start maybe diving into some of this messiness and start talking to our kids about all of these things because we can't ignore them anymore. And if we aren't aware of them, our own global literacies and ability to interact with our world and our children's abilities in the future are going to reduce. So as we close up our conversation today, maybe end with just one quick tip that you think you would like our listeners to remember, what is one thing that they could like do today that would start them on the path to helping make these global literacy changes in our hearts and our minds? I'm really glad that you mentioned your heart and your mind, because these things do exceed just um, an intellectual examination. Um, I've heard you use the term moral literacy before, and I think that really approaching um, topics with a sense of moral literacy and then going from there to thinking what ethically does this imply in my own daily action because our ethical choices originate from our moral commitments. And I think something as simple as, like I said, if you are in um, a middle-class, upper-middle-class lifestyle, examine your day. Examine who are the people that make your day possible. Do you recognize them? Do you acknowledge them as human beings? Do you thank them? Do you make an extra effort to get to know what situations they are um, facing, what resources, what challenges, um, and then in your daily life, being cognizant of that. That's step one. And I think step two, looking for um, ways in your own sphere of influence that you can get involved and that you can um, not ignore things because I think that we are in a, we're at a crucial point in our society where um, people will not be ignored anymore and um, where there are power struggles don't you want to be a part of helping resolve that in our democratic tradition, in our tradition of civility that acknowledges righteous indignation, righteous anger, and yet channels that and helps um, our country be one that continues a tradition of being able to move in a world where not everyone has the same opinion, not everyone has the same um, privileges, yet we're working toward a better world. And that's what we all would want in the end, a better world. So let's start working and we'll get there someday. Thank you so much, Ramona. Thank you. Ramona Kutri is a professor of multicultural education here at BYU. Now, before we leave you, I'm going to step around the librarian's table with a few librarians from around Utah to talk about kids, books, and life at the library. Today, I'm going to chat with a few of my library students about books appropriate for the Thanksgiving season. So to start out, Taylor, you made a really interesting observation. So to start out, tell us what is your observation about Thanksgiving books? Yeah, so we were talking about how the 
really holiday themed books are more picture books and there's not a lot of those in the YA realm or even the intermediate books. Right. Yeah. The holiday themed ones tend to be like maybe just some of the cheaper romance books <laughs> in the YA community. And most of those just center on Christmas, you know, or Valentine's Day if they, you know, really want to get crazy. But yeah, not a lot of Thanksgiving or Halloween or even fall sort of themed books in YA or intermediate. They mostly just have those in children's picture books. You know, that that really, when you say the, you know, kind of cheesy romance things, that really does make me think because, you know, you think the quintessential kind of movie format of that is the Hallmark movie, right? Oh, yeah. And there's tons of like Christmas Hallmark movies, it, mm-hmm. so much so, in mm-hmm. fact, that they start like in October showing the romantic cheesy Hallmark Christmas yep. movies. Yeah. But there's very rarely a Thanksgiving one, right? Right. So that's interesting to me. I mean, why let's speculate. Why why is that? Why is why is Thanksgiving such a hard storytelling holiday? I mean, part of it is probably because only Americans celebrate Thanksgiving. That's true. And YA is trying to be a little bit more diverse and global, I think especially right now. So Christmas, you know, like countries all around the world celebrate Christmas or some equivalent or something like that but they don't celebrate Thanksgiving you know England doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving yeah Australia doesn't any of the other non-English speaking countries don't yeah, I feel like it's usually just like sitcoms because they like to do a seasonal episode of like everything yeah. just because it's following right. where yeah. we are at and when they do I feel like the themes that they try to pull on with Thanksgiving is like the hardness of being with family like, they try to bring drama into it, that it's hard to get together with family over the holidays. And that would be a tricky thing, particularly in a children's book, to say, right? Because you don't want to focus on the hardness of getting together with family when you're focusing on a child's audience or even a young adult audience, right? Right, that yeah, be... they don't quite understand those themes yet, I don't think. Yeah. So thematically, I think it would be tricky. But, I mean, there are some really great kind of Thanksgiving books that that are thematically not necessarily Thanksgiving. They're more like gratitude books and they're not necessarily, so those aren't necessarily Thanksgiving books per se, but they're, they're more, you know, thematic to the holiday. And you have some favorites along those lines, don't you? So one from my childhood that if anyone ever asks me about a Thanksgiving or fall book, that's my favorite. First thing that comes to mind is the plump and perky turkey. And so even just the name of that book is just really fun. And so it's about a town that is realizing every Thanksgiving they there's a scarce of turkeys. All the turkeys know what's going on. They pack up their bags <laughs> and they leave. So the town decides to come up with some like plot to lure a turkey to their town for lure Thanksgiving. The turkeys, I love that. <laughs> and so they try to do like a plumped perky turkey contest and only one turkey comes, but this turkey ends up fooling the the townspeople out of their like he he plays one back on the townspeople and it's really fun that that is so playful and fun i mean that's one of the things i like about i guess all holiday books is they tend to have that kind of playful kind of context that that brings just some laughter and fun to the holiday and this one's such a good one because there's so many things that you can do in the classroom as well Mm -hmm. to play off of it because they make turkey sculptures in it and so a lot of the times the kids can do things or how what are you going to make a turkey out of or like how are you going to disguise a turkey to and so it's really fun that's a fun one i love that one any other ones i was thinking about the rollaway pumpkin it's not really a Thanksgiving book, but it's kind of 
fall themed. Um, it's about this woman in a- another town, <laughs> and she has this giant pumpkin, but it's escaped from her pumpkin patch, and it's rolling away. And so she gets all the the townspeople to try and help her stop it. And so eventually, like the entire town is just running after this giant pumpkin. Um, but eventually, they catch up to it and. Um, make it into pumpkin soup, and then, you know, they just all celebrate with their pumpkin soup together. (laughs) That's cool. So that kind of has the theme of the, you know, the gingerbread man, that classic tale, right? And that's really cool. I like that one. There's lots of pumpkin books out there, too. I think think pumpkins are another kind of fall Thanksgiving theme. That's a good one. Megan, do you have any that you want to suggest? Yeah. um, One of my favorite Thanksgiving stories, it is in book format as well, but also just the video is the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving story. (laughs) I love Charlie Brown. Yes, Yes. Yes. And I love that Thanksgiving story because my favorite part is when they're trying to make their own Thanksgiving feast, but they're kids, so all they can do is make, you know, some toast and some popcorn and they get some jelly beans. (laughs) But they still have a lot of fun being together, and they're all able to come together and just celebrate those bonds of friendship that they have. And I think that's super awesome for kids to see that, like, that's what Thanksgiving is really about, is celebrating the bonds of the people that we're with. And that was especially important to me when my family and I were living abroad, and so we weren't in America, we weren't around all of our typical holiday traditions, but we were together on Thanksgiving with some of our friends. And so that story has always been really important to me. Yeah. I mean, one of the ones kind of along those lines that I associate with Thanksgiving is the the old poem, Over the River and Through the Woods, oh, yeah. right? And that one, they're usually in a sleigh, so it tends to be more wintry sometimes than Thanksgiving. But I always associate that poem with Thanksgiving, right? Because it's like the traveling to be mm-hmm. with family mm-hmm. and, and particularly family that you might not be with all the time, like right. going to grandmother's house or going to, you know, an aunt or uncle's house. And I love that sense of that kind of connection and family um, that these kinds of Thanksgiving stories often bring to. And there's so many really great illustrated editions. I mean, I mm-hmm. think I think Over the River and Through the Woods has been like illustrated in hundreds of different editions, right? So right. all you'd have to do is look that up and you'll you'll find really just an amazing array of those kinds of, you know, homey family mm-hmm. kind of fun stories that you can share yeah, at this time of year. Favorite. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, thank you all. This has been fun to share some of our favorite Thanksgiving stories and some of our thoughts on why this is more of a picture book genre <laughs> than, than other things. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. We've had quite the show today. First, we heard from author David Adler about nonfiction. Professor Teresa Love was in studio to talk about the importance of drama and theater. Ramona Kutri spoke about crossing racial barriers. And we were just around the librarian's table with Emily, Megan, and Taylor talking about Thanksgiving books. We also heard from Randy Evanson, who told us a story about his interactions with a live turkey. If you have missed any of today's show or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger. Our student production assistant is Natalie Anderson. And our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.